Are you a Genzibar user or super user? Well, it's time to jam at Genzibar Jam, May 31st through June 3rd in Orlando, Florida. Register today at jam.genzibar.com. Three higher ed authors, 100 plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio back with you here on another episode, and we're going to continue forever, or at least that's what my co-founder and producer of the Ed Up Experience podcast, Elvin Freitas, tells me each day when he books me months in advance and says, sorry, Joe, you have to do more. There's a lot of people that we need to talk to. And so I say, okay, I'm going to take a bite of my sandwich while I podcast, because that's what I do, eat while podcasting. You know that very well, because I've told you. Um, I'm very excited about today. We have um, a co-host back, but he's a fresh, new mugged co-host. I had to send him the mug, because this is, I think, his third or fourth time co-hosting here on the Edip Experience. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. He is Dr. Chuck Ambrose, and he's the president at Henderson State University. What's going on, Chuck? Andrew, they, uh, they double your compensation for co-hosting once you move from the guest to the, uh, so, uh, Joe, I've missed you. Uh, you. You've been busy, but as you know, I volunteered for this one because uh, I look forward to the conversation with Andrew. Yes, and uh, so, and of course, one of the rules, and I gave you the mug, right? So I, I had to send you the mug, but one of the rules typically, and I'm gonna give you a free pass this time, is you don't reveal the name of the guest before I introduce them. But you're only on your like third or fourth podcast, so we're gonna get, cut you some slack. Well, he only gave you the first name, Joe. So yeah, you get the first name, but but you know now you've said something too, so people go, oh, I know that name. Here he is. We're gonna bring him in now. He is Andrew Del Banco. He's the president of the Teagle Foundation. Andrew, what's going on? How are you? Good. It's a beautiful day in New York, and uh, I always think the best thing to do is come inside and sit in front of the screen and do a Zoom. So I'm really happy to be here with you. Live in the now. Well, that's what we do, isn't it? Um, uh, no, seriously, I'm, I appreciate the invitation and I'm glad and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, we're honored to have you because the Teagle Foundation is really doing some incredible work. Um, you know, we always uh, level set at the beginning of these episodes. Somebody here listening hasn't heard of the Teagle Foundation. So talk to the person that hasn't heard of the Teagle Foundation. What do you guys do and how do you do it? Well, we're a sort of modest size foundation located in New York City, but we try to take a, a view of the whole country and our commitment is to do what we can to support and invigorate and encourage liberal education, by which I mean education at the college level, we're not talking about K through 12, as important as that is, education at the college level that helps prepare young people to become citizens of our democracy, to help helps them learn how to think, how to listen to one another, how to entertain points of view that they might not have considered before, and to exercise their curiosity and their imagination, which is, I think, a large part of what a good college education should be about. Excellent. You know, um, it's funny, and you know this, because everything you said, there are those that go, well, wait a minute. That's not what higher education is about anymore. It's about jobs and skills and work and employment. And there is a movement 
I think it's a movement, or at least um, there's a certain contingent of the population that's a detractor away from a liberal arts education. You're t the Teagle Foundation, this is what you're supporting. Can you talk about that dichotomy that exists right now and, and what the Teagle Foundation thinks about higher education and its worth? Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right. We're in some ways swimming against the current. There's a lot of skepticism about the value of a college education, and some of it is very well-placed because we all know how expensive it has become. Uh, and as parents uh, help their children get to and through college, and sometimes they have to make financial sacrifices or have to take out loans, it's quite reasonable for people to say, okay, what's the return on my investment? And the clearest return on investment that people want to hear about is my kid's going to get a job after college. My kid's going to have the skills necessary not only to get that job, but to prosper in it and to be advanced into a real career. True. I got, I have no problem with any of those concerns and propositions. I have a problem with the idea that there's an either or situation here. In other words, yes, colleges, of course, should prepare young people for the marketplace, equip them for the, with the skills that they need in whatever area they, they've chosen to work in. But they also have an obligation, in my view, in the view of our foundation, to help prepare young people to be something more than workers in this sector or that sector. Because whoever you are, physician, engineer, plumber, taxi driver, whatever you do, you are also a member of this larger society. And you have a lot of questions to think about when you go to the polls to vote, when you decide what organizations to engage with, when you decide what kind of life you wanna lead uh, for yourself and your family. And I think colleges have an obligation to help young people think about those kinds of questions. Nailed it. Why do you think the, uh, before I pass it to you, Chuck, why do you think the public has lost a little bit of trust in higher ed? Um, and maybe in the liberal arts in general. Is it, it, and I ask, I ask myself this a lot, and I go, okay, the increasing cost of tuition, but that's not new. We know that's happened and certain universities are, have had, had rising costs, but then there's a lot of state universities and community colleges that haven't risen their costs or, or kept them flat. So it's kind of been always about the way you want to go to college or the way you want to experience it. What do you attribute to the, the lack of public trust? Well, you know, it's a complicated question and I'm in the complication business. So I only ask complicated questions. Yeah. Right now. So, so bear with me on this. I mean, we're, I think it's probably is true that in some measurable degree, public trust in institutions of higher education has declined. But I doubt that it's declined as much as we imagine. It's a little bit, I mean, you get the same phenomenon with the K through 12 schools. If you ask somebody, what do you think of the school system? They'll say, oh, it's a mess. Kids aren't learning anything. There's no discipline anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, what do you think about the, your, your own kid's school? And they'll say, well, you know, it's, it's pretty good. My, my ah. having a pretty good experience. My sense is that um, in a lot of communities around America, there's a lot of pride in the local college, the liberal arts college, community college, uh, regional public university, whatever kind of institution it might be. But there's a perception that higher education in general is beset with serious problems. And it is. 
So it's 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 both it's a both and situation, and and I think there's still a lot of reasons to believe in the future of our higher education system. Well, I want to pass it to Chuck, but before I do, I do want to say that I gave Chuck a list of of people. I said, Chuck, I want you to pick one of the guests to come on. And I mean, Barack Obama was on there, Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> you know, the uh, president of Germany, Andrew Del Banco, and he says Andrew Del Banco, and that's that's uh, I want to put set that up for you, Chuck. Yeah, there's, it, it's true, Andrew, and, and thank you for uh, allowing me to engage in this conversation uh, because, Andrew, I'm one of those um, presidents uh, whose uh, perspective and some of the key learnings, and I, I would actually say the success that allows you to kind of stay in it for 25 years that was uh, really uh, contributed to by Dick Kimball and the Teagle Foundation. Um, and... Uh, uh, longtime president Joe, uh, probably one of uh, best friends of the small private college. And uh, Andrew, I sat in the office in New York City. I was green. I was just this was 25 years ago. Uh, and and Dick asked me the the two or three questions I knew as a president I needed to be able to answer. Are you solvent? Right? Uh, does your mission serve your students? Uh, and then uh, he said. Uh, what could I do to help in ways that you do not have the means to help yourself? Um, and uh, Andrew, it was, uh, it was the difference, right? I, I valued his words uh, and then uh, ultimately his long-term friendship and he stayed with me, right, to, to see it through. Uh, I tracked your uh, arrival at the foundation because really between you and people like Arthur Vining Davis, there's not a whole lot of private sector uh, direct support, right, for strategic. Uh, and now, you know, you're elevating. Matter of fact, I, I think one of the primary objectives that you state is this, you know, eliminating the privilege, right, that the liberal arts had represented. And I think that's where I'd probably like to go first, because I know your book and some other things. How, how, how can we do that, right? How, because in some ways, the system is actually producing the outcomes that it was designed to affect uh, on the basis of access and cost. But are you seeing uh, change? Well, that's a great, that's a great question, Chuck, and I, I'm glad you raised it. I, let, me, let me turn the terms of your, your question slightly for a moment. Um, why should we do it? That is, why should we care that liberal education is not something reserved exclusively for the privileged few, but is something that should be available to anyone from any socioeconomic circumstances who wants to experience it. I think that's a really important question about not just higher education, but about our democracy. If you go back to the origin of the word liberal, it's not about one political party or another, right? It was meant in the classical world, it comes from the Latin liber, for free. It was meant to designate the kind of education for a free person. That is, a person who is in a position to make choices in their lives and could benefit from an acquaintance with literature, philosophy, history, the arts, so that they can make, that they can reflect more deeply about the, those choices and be a, a more, uh, informed contributing member of their society as a free person. 
surely we still believe in that ideal. That's what democracy is all about, that everybody should have the opportunity to participate, that everybody should have a voice. We don't want to say in this country, I think, we got a bunch of people who should just get technical training because that's the, the most they can expect. But we got other people who could learn about history and art and music and take the time to reflect on the meaning of their lives because they can afford to do so. Yikes! That's not a place we want to be. We want to be in a place where those opportunities are available as much as possible for everyone. Nailed it. Now, how are we doing uh, to achieve that? I, I fear that we have uh, experienced some backsliding because if you go back and look at the uh, earlier 20th century, mid 20th century, it's the, the great public universities which were opening their doors primarily to the citizens of their own states, but also beyond that, had a real commitment to this broad general liberal education that I'm talking about. And that was a part of the charter and, and mission of many, if not most of them. Um, that has been changing, I, I fear, uh, for reasons that we can talk about, as the emphasis has become more and more on practical training. And I use the word training in, in distinction from the word education. Those are two different things, right? Training is about getting adept, getting competent at a certain procedure that you need to know how to do. And it's not like that's not important, but it's not the whole thing. Education is about personal growth, about enlarging the imagination. And I worry when I see in individual institutions or a whole sector or public discourse moving entirely in that narrow training direction and away from the education direction. So what we try to do at the foundation, we're trying to resist that trend. We're trying to encourage people like yourself around the country at all kinds of institutions, private, public, two-year, four-year, denominational, sec uh, secular. We don't care what the origins uh, of the institution are, as long as there are people there committed to the kind of education I'm talking about, the Teagle Foundation is interested in talking with them. Wonderful. Chuck, you got one more? You want me to jump back in? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, Andrew, I've got to confess something to you because um, as Henderson being the, the public liberal arts institution historically over the last 15 years in um, Arkansas, we've we've had that crash, right, where uh, enrollment um, and uh, I, I, I told uh, my friends at the Chronicle this, uh, it, it, it wasn't the liberal arts that broke down, uh, it's how we do them, you know, it's the, it's the spread of programs, it's the instructional allocations, it's just the, it's the business of college, not, um, and, and don't you think when you, you, you mentioned uh, that shift in we defaulted the workforce and we, we lost the, the war, right? Because if, if you went from the Wisconsin ideal of what you said uh, to the only way that we could gain the attention of policymakers, funders, uh, and then ultimately students, is, is that the, the inflection point uh, where uh, we, we lost uh, the liberation side of the liberal arts? Yeah. Well, 
I don't know that I can put my finger on a moment when we lost and I'm, I'm gonna resist a little bit the, the vocabulary of losing because you know history goes in waves and cycles. Uh, sometimes uh, something is on the upswing, sometimes something is on the decline. And I, I, I have faith that um, there will be a rebound, there will be a resurgence of this uh, idea that I'm talking about because I think it's so fundamental to the American aspiration. I mean, if you think about, I mean, what do we say about ourselves as a country that distinguishes us from other countries? We say, this is a country where you do not have to be the same, uh, in the same social status as your parents or grandparents were. You don't have to do what they did. You may choose to, and that's fine, but this is a country that gives you a choice to make a life of your own design, right? To invent yourself, to explore opportunity. That's what makes us different from the old world as we used to call Europe and other societies in the world where you know what's gonna to happen to you and to your children because that's what's been happening for generations to your family. America's supposed to be different and educational institutions are among the most powerful instruments we have to make that American dream real. Now, I just used the phrase American dream. I didn't plan on it exactly. Uh, that's a, that's a, a good phrase maybe to pause on for a moment. A lot of people think the American dream can be defined as, you know, the proverbial house in the suburbs with the backyard and the picket fence and one or two cars in the garage. Sprinkler too, watering the grass. Sprinkler too, right? Sprinkler system, exactly. And yeah, sure, everybody aspires to a life of prosperity where you don't have to worry about money and you can provide the basics to your family. That's an important part of the American dream and the idea that you can get beyond where your parents were in that regard. But that's not the whole story. The American dream is also about what I was talking about earlier, choice, the uh, freedom to shape the life that you want to have, to tap into your own creativity and into your own curiosity. That's part of the American dream. And to live, into a, live in a community that's willing to let you be who you are and who you wanna be. Those are the, those are the issues that I think uh, college students in, the, in, in this country should have in front of them in those precious years between adolescence and adulthood when they're sort of halfway out of their parents' home, but not quite all the way into a, a state of autonomy. Those questions about what kind of life you wanna lead are on the minds of all young people, right? I've never met a young person who isn't thinking and worrying about what kind of life lies ahead. And educational institutions should help them with that process. And there are lots of different ways to do that. We can talk about that, the curriculum, residential life, uh, co-curricular activities, engagement with the community, all kinds of ways to do it. And our foundation looks for good ideas that people come forward with, and then we help them bring them into reality. Let's talk tactically. Let's shift just a minute. And, and uh, I, I want to know how it works. And because, you know, you could be in an institution right now going, we, we promote the little liberal arts and we would love to do something here. And 
supercharge what we're doing and how do I get involved with the Teagle Foundation? What do I need to do and how do I do it? And how do I know if I'm the right profile of school? How, 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 Andrew, that's like five questions. Okay, five questions I'll try to give relatively short answer. First thing to do is go to the Teagle website <laughs> and, and, and read it. We try to make it clear and engaging. We have um, four areas currently in which we are making grants. One of them is called the Cornerstone Program, which is about general education, about trying to reorganize the general education program in an undergraduate college. And we believe in certain principles there. We think it's very valuable if as many students as possible can be reading some of the same books, okay? Why do we believe that? Because we believe that's a way to build community on the college campus. If you, ah. if you have students who have read some of the same essays, articles, books, listened to some of the same music, gone to see some of the same works of art, they got something to talk about with one another, even if they're not physically in the same classroom or living in the same dormitory or on campus versus off campus. So Cornerstone, and I, I could go into detail later if you want, is one of our initiatives. A second initiative is called Knowledge for Freedom. This is a program that is actually targeted at about to graduate high school students. That is uh, students who are between their junior and senior years of high schools who come primarily from low income or disadvantaged communities. They could be urban, they could be rural. And we make grants to institutions, colleges or universities that want to work with those students bring them onto campus in the summer and introduce them to an intensive humanities course so that they can not only prepare themselves for college, but come to college with a broader idea of what college is about. That doesn't, Wonderful. Mean, that doesn't mean they all have to be English majors or philosophy majors and most of them won't be, but it does mean that if they choose engineering or computer science or nursing or business or whatever it is, they will also have this other dimension where they'll be maybe curious enough to take a history course, maybe curious enough to take a philosophy course. So we're very committed to that. We have about 25 institutions around the country now that are doing this excellent work with young people in the local community. Third initiative we're, which we're doing, and you mentioned the Arthur Binding Davis Foundation, Chuck, they are our partners in this work. We are working to try to make it uh, more feasible for community college students to transfer, if they wish, to a four-year private liberal arts institution. We know that the overwhelming majority of community college students begin with the aspiration to go to a four-year college and get a bachelor's degree. And we also know that a very small percentage of them succeed in doing that. We want to try to make a change in that area. And we think that private liberal arts colleges are an untapped resource in this regard. A lot of community college students just assume that they're gonna go on to the four-year public institution and often that's the right choice. But sometimes there's a private institution nearby that's looking to recruit students that might provide more personal attention 
and we want that institution to be on the screen for the community college uh, students. And finally, this is sort of the broadest area, and this is where um, perhaps uh, if there are representatives from institutions listening to this, you might find this uh, invitation the most intriguing. We have uh, an area called Education for American Civic Life. And that is one where we are looking for proposals from colleges and universities that have fresh ideas about how to help their students feel connected to the larger society, feel informed about our democratic institutions. Like, what is this thing, the constitution? Why do we have a government with three branches, right? Judicial, executive, and legislative. What's uh -huh. that about? What's, that about? Um, what's the Bill of Rights? And why is that important to me? And how have these institutions and principles uh, worked in the, in the community in which I live? What kind of history have the people in the community in which I live experienced in this democracy of ours? Has it been a good one, a bad one, or a mixture of the two? Uh, how much freedom is there really out there? How much opportunity is there really out there? How can I learn more about my local community and make a contribution to the welfare of people beyond the campus gates? So those are our four areas right now. Um, the foundation is not frozen in time. At some point, one or more of those will, as we say, sunset and something else will come into view. And we also do make special grants, uh, modest size special grants, if somebody comes in with a really exciting idea that doesn't fit into any of those four categories. So that's the best I can do to answer that question. But the main thing is go to the website and it should be all there. Love that. It's time to jam. Oh, oh, oh yeah. At Genzabar Jam, the annual meeting for the Genzabar community in Orlando, Florida, May 31st through June 3rd, 2023. You are invited to join us for the annual gathering of this Genzabar community at the Gaylord Palms Resort in Orlando, Florida. Don't miss it. You're going to discover new tips and tricks that you can save your office time, resources, and money every single day. It's time to jam. Register now at jam.genzabar.com. Oh, oh, yeah. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents, will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away we think you're gonna love it it's amazing chuck i'm gonna pass it to you but i do want to just note that andrew of course is a you know not just the president of the teagle foundation but he's a liberal arts practitioner as it were and just for like a year or so you've been teaching at columbia right like a year or two yeah like multiply that by 38 right 38, yeah, yeah. 38 years 38 years been teaching at Columbia University. And so you, you know, and the reason I bring that up is because the relevance is, is you have firsthand knowledge of this, you're teaching it, you're doing it, you're seeing the impact of liberal arts, you're seeing people question the impact of the liberal arts. This is all part of what makes the Teagle Foundation unique in what it does is because you have a leader who's watching it happen in real time. And I, Chuck, I'll pass it over to you, but I just thought I'd bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. No. 
Joe so teed that up well, Andrew, because uh, I, I read college what it was, uh, is, and should be uh, back in its first edition. Um, and uh, I understand uh, this week, uh, perhaps um, a, a second edition uh, is being released. And I have to, to say, again, looking forward to us being together, uh, I'm incredibly uh, intrigued to know what's the difference, right, between the first and second edition other than COVID uh, and a few other things. But just could you tell, tell us why a second edition and, and what we should look for? And I've got to follow up after that. Okay, well, I can answer that briefly, but if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to the other thing about why I actually still enjoy teaching and why that, uh, that might be connected to the work we do. Uh, the, uh, the second edition is very simple. There's a new chapter that tries to reflect on the impact of the, of the pandemic on higher education and what the implications are for liberal education in particular. So the last chapter is an effort to think about what has happened. So many things have happened. The experiment with remote learning, everybody going on Zoom, you know, before COVID, I thought Zoom was the sound that a motorcycle made. Before you answer, before you answer anything else, plug the book for us. Give, give us, tell us where it is and what the whole title is. Plug and where the to book. Get it. Okay, it's called College, What It Was, Is, and Should Be. It's published by Princeton Press in paperback. There's also an audio book uh, and an ebook. And um, it was pub it was published in a second edition just a couple of days ago, actually. Amazing, amazing. Okay, now you can talk about your your teaching. Yeah. Uh... So, no, look, what I wanted to say is, I do think it's important for my work at the foundation that I still am in the classroom. Um, be, and why is that? So, you know, I say a bunch of things about the college, and I say some of them in this book, such as. I really think students have something to learn from each other, right? That in fact is one of the distinctive characteristics of the American college. If you go to the traditional European university, you're looking at an institution that puts a, an expert at the front of the room, delivers an authoritative lecture, the, the young the people write it down, nobody says anything and they, go away and take an exam in X number of weeks. Yikes! A bit of a caricature, but that's not too far from the truth. The American college idea, and it's, it's always been hard to make it real, but the idea has always been that young people have something to learn from one another, as well as from the professor at the front of the room. And when I have the opportunity, as I'm doing right now this semester, of teaching a class with about 15 students in it. We read literature together. I have a lot to say, but I always make sure that there's opportunity for the students to respond, not just to me and to the text, but to one another. And the truth is, I, they really do learn from each other and I learn from them. Um, let me give you one example that I think really captures this point, at least for me, forcefully. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking about um, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in a class about Lincoln. And I was saying a lot of admiring things about it. 
and about halfway through my comment, a young African-American woman raised her hand and she said something like, Professor, with all due respect, how can you ask me to admire this speech if he never once mentions slavery? And that was a really good question. I, I admired her for her you know, gumption in raising it. And it compelled me to talk to her about the context of the speech. And you know, Lincoln was worried about getting reelected. The, the nation hadn't really embraced the idea that the Civil War was a war against slavery. They, most of the public was still thinking of it as a war against secession. Um, so I had some answers for her, but at the end of the day, it was a powerful question that from, from here on in, I will never be able to talk about the Gettysburg Address without trying to come to terms with that question. And it made me realize in a visceral way, something that I should have re realized long before, that for a student of African-American heritage, that text is a totally different experience than it is for someone uh, who is not African-American. Uh, simply by virtue of the fact of the history of race relations in our country, which obviously have affected black people in a different way than they've affected white people. So it was a learning experience for me and I think for the other students in the class. It's also an argument for why it's so important to have diversity in our colleges and universities, to have classes that are composed of kids from, I shouldn't use the term kids, young people from a variety of different backgrounds, not just racial, ethnic, religious, uh, economic, uh, language. Um, the more, the more uh, diversity you have in the room, the more interesting the class becomes. So what I'm saying is that just by virtue of the fact that I'm still in the classroom having these experiences every week, uh, it helps me stay fresh and it helps me feel that, you know, the kind of stuff we're talking about right now is not just an abstraction, it's actually real for me. And uh, I actually believe most, most of what I say I actually believe is true. <laughs> Go ahead, Chuck, you had a good question. And uh, actually, maybe it wasn't that good because I don't remember what it was, or maybe it was super good, but either way, ask it again. Yeah, and, and, and you always help to frame questions that, that way, Joe, so I appreciate that. Andrew, uh, in the first version, you, you attributed uh, kind of the outcome of a, a liberal education to, to a small Methodist college in Virginia, right, that was how to think and how to choose, maybe? Is that the, yeah, that, the I, quote? I, I love it. I love it that you remember that, Chuck. Uh, that. I was in the library at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, when I was, uh, I hadn't even started writing the book yet, actually. And I was looking for material concerning the Civil War, which was another interest of mine, about which I've also written. And I came across a manuscript diary by, from a young man who had been a student at Emory and Henry College in Southwest Virginia, in 1850, and he was, had just come back from attending a lecture by the college president. 
no doubt it was really a sermon because in those days, college presidents were almost always uh, ministers. And, and the college president also taught what we would call today the capstone course, right? The course at the, at the second half of a senior year where the student's supposed to pull everything together, right? Everything they learned was supposed to come together into this magnificent whole. And they were, have, they were supposed to go out in the world with a clear understanding of morality and, uh, and what kind of person they should be. And the it's all uh, part of the plan. They were not primarily fundraisers, they were primarily uh, preachers. Anyway, this young man had come back from this sermon and he had clearly been shaken up by it, which is what a sermon is supposed to do, good sermon, and made him look into himself and ask whether he was really worthy of graduating from this college, which by the way, I think is a question that's on the minds of students today, just as much as it was. Definitely. A lot of students feel, you know, like they're imposters, like they don't really belong, that they're not really doing what they're supposed to do. So this young man had all those feelings and he writes in his, in his journal, what you were just remembering, Chuck. He said, God help me to learn to how to think and how to choose. How to yeah. think and how to choose. And when I read that there in the stacks of the Chapel Hill Library, I was really knocked over because it felt to me, and it still feels to me, I've never read a more concise summary of what a liberal education should be about, right? It should be about helping young people learn how to think, which means we could think for themselves, right? To know the difference between an opinion and an argument, right? To know the difference between, let's say, a public figure who's dishing out a lot of platitudes and slogans and someone who's actually trying to talk reality about a complicated problem. That's something that a college graduate should be able to do. And then the choose part, I mean, that's the, that's the challenge of life, right? We have a lot of choices to make every day, every hour. Um, and we need all the help we can get in making good choices. I'm not saying that a professor can tell you what the choice ought to be, but a, a good college can get you to a better place so you can make better choices and, uh, and go out into the world with more confidence in yourself. Yeah, that context, Andrew, is so powerful, right? Thank you for, for you know, uh, just to close the loop, Joe, you know, I, when I was in relationship with Teagle, I was president of a small Methodist college in North Carolina. One of the reasons that stuck, uh, Andrew, is that John Wells, a friend, uh, is a Methodist minister. He is president of Emory and Henry, and he still instills those kind of outcomes. Uh, in young people in Southwest Virginia, right? So um, you're right. It's not a lose battle. It's a battle that's worth fighting. Let's put it that way. Exactly. I love that. I love the connection that you two have that I is unfolding here on the Edup Experience podcast. And it's, it's what a cool set of stories. And, you know, Andrew, we, we want to be respectful of your time and hit you with the last two questions that we give every guest to close out these episodes. And one, first one is, 
what didn't we say about the Teagle Foundation that you think might need to be said? So we'll just call it the op- open mic moments. Anything you want to say, anything you want to announce, anything you want to talk about your team, and whatever, it doesn't matter. And then secondarily to that, tell us what you see for the future of higher education. Well, what we didn't say about the Teagle Foundation, if you met my colleagues at the Teagle Foundation, you'd be blown away by them. I'm a very lucky person. I have an incredibly talented and committed uh, uh, group of colleagues who work with me every day on all of these issues. So that's one thing to know. Another, just to be clear, we're not a very big foundation, right? I mean, there's we got neighbors a few blocks away, like the Mellon Foundation and the Ford Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation. Those, those, those folks have multiple billions of dollars in their endowment. We have, I mean, we have a respectable endowment. We have about $150 million. But when you get down to what that really means, it means we've got five or $6 million each year that we can give away in grants. So on the one hand, I'd like to have a lot more. Uh, On the other hand, it means that we have to be very careful about what we do with that with that fund of grant money. And we it, and, and the positive side of that is we get to know our grantees very well. We, we talk to people, we, we go back and forth with them before we make a judgment about a proposal. And it's sort of a there's, a, there's a personal feeling to what we do. And we meet our grantees for a while. We had to do it over Zoom during COVID, but now we're back to meeting them in person at gatherings around the country. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful job I have, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have it. Now, as for the future of higher education, um, you know, <laughs> one thing, I said I wrote a history book about the coming of the Civil War a few minutes ago, and um, I think the most important thing I learned from writing a history book is that nobody had any idea what was going to happen. No idea. If you look at the United States in 1850, you know, the the opinions and the prophecies and the predictions were all over the map. And no, no, nobody certainly could have imagined the scale of the war that would be upon the country just 10 years later. And that's a negative thing that they didn't imagine. Sometimes we imagine positive things like, you know, <laughs> when I was I'm rambling here a little bit, but I hope that's okay. When I was in fifth grade, I had a really good social studies teacher. And we had a textbook and we studied that textbook. Now this, I'm gonna give away my my age here. So this would have been just about 1960. And this textbook said, the biggest problem that you young people, we didn't call ourselves baby boomers yet, but that's who we were, right? The biggest problem that you young people are gonna have in your life is what to do with all your leisure time, okay? And the reason they, the textbook said that, cause you know, the technology had, uh, we, we had automatic washing machines were coming on the scene, um, remote control TV. So you didn't have to get up to change the channel. Oh yeah. All kinds of new technologies. Nobody could imagine the, the smartphone that we all have in our pocket now or on our wrist. But the idea was all these new technologies were going to save us enormous amounts of time. And we were going to be racking our brains to figure out what to do with all this time we had on our hands. Now, 
you mentioned you've got a lot of listeners out there. I'd be interested in a poll of your listeners and find out how many of them feel that their biggest problem is what to do with their leisure time. Huh? My guess is very few would put that high on the list of the problems they have. In other words, these devices have actually made us busier rather than less busy. Anyway, the long-winded point is nobody has any idea what's going to happen to American higher education. We had predictions uh, a decade ago that the on, onset of online, these MOOCs, right, massive online open courses were going to take over the whole scene and all these brick and mortar colleges and universities were gonna go up and in a puff of smoke, they were gonna disappear. That didn't happen. Um, we, we, we still have prognostications that technology is gonna change fundamentally what colleges and universities are like and what they do. And I think that's probably true. The latest uh, thing is AI, right? And we're, uh, we're all talking about, well, what do we do if our students submit a paper that's been written by a computer rather than by themselves? Um, so there's some new challenges and new problems. Uh, I have some thoughts about that, but we probably don't have time to talk about it today. Um, there is the, the, the cost problem. The cost problem is very serious. What a lot of people don't realize, I think, is that the major contributor to the cost problem for students and their families is the fact that states have not been appropriating funds for higher education uh, at, the, at, the, at a pace that, that keeps pace with rising inflation and rising costs. So the cost of higher education has been steadily transferred from the taxpayers of the state to the fam families and the students over the last quarter century. I think that's a really dangerous trend and one that I hope we can reach a public consensus uh, that it should be that it should be reversed. Um, we it it seems like the stem fields are taking over science, technology, engineering, mathematics. They're very exciting fields. They promise a better future. Um, a lot of young people are really interested in those subjects and they look like the right avenue toward gainful employment. And I'm all for them, right? Some of my best friends are in the STEM fields. But the question is, can we preserve a place for the what we call the humanities for liberal education so that we don't produce just technicians and robots, but we produce thinking, thoughtful, reflective Americans? And I gotta be optimistic about that because that's why I get up in the morning and go to work and uh, I think we'll find a way to continue to do that. I love it. Chuck, what'd you think of this conversation? Uh, you know, uh, you're right, Andrew. I mean, uh, maybe it's reclaiming the liberation of the liberal arts, right? Um, and uh, the consequences without it, uh, I think, are some of the problems we're trying to solve for. Um, and uh, I... Uh, it just takes me back, Joe, to um, what Siegel has done for leaders, uh, what they've done for institutions. Um, and uh, Andrew, I just want to thank you for your leadership, because again, I, I go back to a time that it probably made the difference uh, for a small Methodist school in North Carolina. So it, it's just an honor to say thank you. Well, that's wonderful to hear. It 
really is. Um, and uh, I will share that with my colleagues and the members of our board. And um, I know they'll appreciate it very much. So thank you so much. And thank you for volunteering to be the co-host today. Keep doing the work, right? It was more Just like he voluntold me. It was more like a voluntold Joe, I'm doing this one. That's what he did. <laughs> I said, okay, let's That's do it. Um, my guest co-host, your guest co-host today, He's Dr. Chuck Ambrose, and he is the president, maybe chancellor. I don't know what your official title is. I, one of the two are probably the same, Henderson State University, and he's turning, turning it around down there because uh, he's got great business sense. That's what I can say about Chuck, and it's not the first time he's done it. So uh, hold, your, hold your saddles, ladies and gentlemen. Watch out for Henderson State University um, under Chuck, your leadership. And, of course, our guest today, your guest today, He's a doctor too. He got a doctorate in, on those massive degrees that he has. He's Dr. Andrew Obanko, and he is president of the Teagle Foundation. Andrew, we hope you had a good time on the podcast today. Enjoyed it very much, Joe and Chuck. Thank you so much. Have a great day, and I hope our paths will cross again. Thanks. With that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Are you a Genzibar user or super user? Well, it's time to jam at Genzibar Jam, May 31st through June 3rd in Orlando, Florida. Register today at jam.genzibar.com. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucille, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's higher education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin 